0: Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the history of modern Greece where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host Daniel Roberts and I'm here with my father George. Hi, my name is George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is season 2 episode 71. The Turkic origin stories, Rise of the Gokturk Empire. After five long episodes covering the Norman conquests of southern Italy and Sicily, they landed an entire army in the Balkans and captured the imperial city of Dyrrhachium. From this point on, the Normans were considered at the front door of the Roman Empire. If you look at historical events as parallel, this has happened before, sort of. 1,200 years before this, the Macedonian Empire was invaded by the Roman Empire, and now the Normans had crossed the same seas and established a foothold on the mainland in almost the same fashion. Robert Guiscard would stop at nothing short of seizing Constantinople, slaying the emperor, and wearing the crown upon his own head. To think that these men were once pagan Vikings, ravaging the countryside of Europe, now they were going head-to-head with the Roman Empire. The Normans might not take Constantinople for themselves, but they had already triggered a series of events leading to the ultimate collapse of the Byzantine Roman Empire. The fascinating part isn't that the Normans had landed on the coast of the Balkans and were now within striking distance of the most precious cities of the Roman Empire. Instead, what's most fascinating is that the Normans would have typically been crushed and wiped off the face of the earth had they struck during the time of Basil II. But the empire was weakened, and they were suffering major incursions on all fronts. The largest invasion into Roman-controlled lands wasn't happening from the west. It wasn't the Normans. The biggest threat to Roman stability came from the east, from a nomadic steppe tribe of Turks called The Seljuks. Before we went into the Norman Conquest mini series, we mentioned the list of bad emperors that finally led to a man named Alexios Komnenos. Alexios was the emperor that brought the Roman Empire back from the brink of collapse. He was also the man who triggered the First Crusade. But before we jump into the life of Alexios, which is extremely fascinating, we must do our very last origin story for season two. The Turks deserve far more than a single episode. They deserve an entire miniseries. If you had the Normans and the Vikings together, you get ten full episodes dedicated to the Viking Normans. The very least we can do is half of that coverage. We're going to go back in time to the days of Justinian when the Roman Empire had just defeated the mighty Huns. This is hundreds of years before the current time in our narrative. And similar to the story of the Huns, we start our origin story in the steppeland, in the far east, just north of the great Han kingdom
1: of China. Do you remember the episode about the Shan Nu? The origin story of the Huns who originated in the far east of the Eurasian steppe. These nomadic raiders lived in the harsh grasslands north of China. This great prairie stretched all the way from Europe to Asia and was so far north that it mostly grew grass and sporadic patches of forest. It was ideal land for horses, being so flat the herds could ride for days in any direction before hitting mountains or oceans. It was further north than China, Persia, and India. It was obscenely cold in the winter and insanely hot in the summer. It was a harsh environment that gave birth to harsh civilizations. This wasn't the type of land that was settled and farmed. The steppe was a wild place. The Sharnu raided China and eventually were repelled after the civilized world rose up and forced them out. The Chinese even occupied their harsh territory for a short period before retreating back to their more habitable zones. This happened in Persia, again in the Caucasus, and even in the Pontic regions of Eastern Europe. It seemed that a border between the civilized world and the nomadic world was drawn. Any civilization that rested on the edge of the Eurasian steppe had regular encounters with these nomadic tribes. And for the most part, they were able to keep them out of trouble. We're talking about the Chinese, the Persians, and the Romans. The best strategy was to build fortress cities along the edge of the agricultural lands and the nomadic steppe lands, and make sure these fortresses were garrisoned every day of the year. So they could destroy any horse tribe that wandered too far south. Trade was perfectly fine between the two peoples. In fact, it was encouraged. These fortresses were often used as trading posts, where the nomadic steppe tribes of the Eurasian steppe would trade furs for silks. But when these nomadic horse tribes banded together, it always spelt doom and gloom for the civilizations to the south. The Chinese defeated the Shanu and were forced to migrate west, where they coalesced into the Hun and attacked the Romans practically crumbling the entire western half of the empire. But what happened to these steppe tribes once the Huns fell apart? Well, the cycle repeated itself. Only this time, instead of the Shan Nu taking control of all the steppe tribes, another group rose to power. They were known as the Celestial Turks. The history of the Turks begins in
0: the Altai Mountains where Turkic tribal people worship the sky god Tengri. It's always good to start an origin story with the mythology of the group in question. What is very fascinating with Tengriism is that it is a growing religion in Turkey. Small pockets of tribal people still practice the religion in Central Asia, and a growing number of people in Turkey are starting to take it up again. Let's start by saying... There is very little information out there on Tangriism. We had to get most of our information from the documentary channel Khan's Den on YouTube and through a website called academia.edu where the Silk Road Research Group wrote a paper called A Possible Source of Tangriism by the University of Seged So what is Tangriism? Tangri is the god of the Turks. He is a sky father, or heavenly father. He is the ultimate ruler of the eternal blue sky. If a Turk lived a good and just life, he would be treated justly in the afterlife. But, if a man led a wicked and bad life, when he died, he would be sent to the underworld, where he would have to answer to Erlik, the god of the underworld. And just like other ancient religions... Tangriism had an Earth Mother-like person. Tangriism has a Mother Earth-like goddess. Her name is Umai, and she is the protector of all unborn children. If someone is born, and lives an unfulfilling life, and somehow manages to find his or her way into the underworld, facing the judgment of Ehrlich, they will ultimately be judged, punished, and then reborn so that they may be given another chance at living a good life and making their way into heaven. But with Tangriism, there are souls everywhere. Water spirits live in the streams and rivers and lakes and even the trees. These souls watch over the natural realm and bring balance to the forces of nature. In traditional Tangriism, the people were to live a balanced life with nature, they were not to eat or drink too much and live harmoniously with other people. Tangri may have been the all powerful god of gods, but he was not the creator god who made mankind and earth. That was done by his son, Olgen. In the beginning, the two sons of Tangri, Olgen and Erlik, got into a heated fight. It seems as though they could not agree with each other's roles in the celestial world, and after a great battle, Olgen banished Erlik to the underworld. There were also many goddesses in the Turkic religions, and as such, women were held almost as equals to their male counterparts. Most of the written sources of the early Turks came from Chinese sources, and they made sure to mention how odd and ridiculous it was to see women given such high roles of power and responsibility. The Turks had women as diplomats, and even generals. The Chinese would make fun of the Turks for being naive, which probably meant that the common Turkic person was just more honest and trustworthy, and the Chinese took advantage of this trait. Turkic mythology is based on eternal cycles and life lessons. If mistakes were made in the past, they were to learn from them and pass these lessons down to the next generation. The Turks have a spiritual connection with the trees, as in the Turkic tree of life, as well as the wolf, the hawk, and the horse. According to Tengriism, one did not get into heaven by believing in Tengri alone. Instead, one got into heaven by leading a good life. This is different than the Abrahamic religions. One may never have known who Tengri was, but as long as they lived a good life, they would make it to the highest level of the afterlife. While someone who worshipped Tengri every day, but led an immoral life, would face the judgment of Ehrlich. The single most important animal in a Turk's life, whether it be a boy or a girl, was the horse. By a very young age, all Turks were expected to learn how to ride their own horse, how to hunt on horseback, and even how to fight on horseback. There was no other way to live on the
1: Great Eurasian Steppe. Now that we have given you a crash course on Turkic celestial and terrestrial life, We can return to the first Turkic cognate. This will be a blend of mythology and history, or fact and fiction. In the Altai Mountains of Central Asia, where the Turkic peoples lived, along with the noble families of the Huns who were expelled from China many centuries before, many settlements lived in the oasis of the most inhospitable desert. This land was shared by the Turkic peoples and the Huns, As well as Indo Europeans. In modern days, this is the land where Mongolia, China, Russia, and Kazakhstan all meet, just north of the Himalayas. In 439, a rising dynasty of China was on the march, and they made their way into the Altai region and began massacring the villages one by one. They were after the noble families of the Huns that were seeking refuge in the region. Soldiers rode in on horseback, and because of the nature of the oasis settlements, it was relatively easy to surround the settlements and massacre every living person within. One of these villages that were sacked saw everyone within killed. Everyone but one boy. This young child took refuge with a she-wolf. Word made it back to the Chinese commander that a young boy had survived and was being nurtured by a wolf and orders were given to find the wolf and the boy and kill them both. The ten-year-old boy climbed onto the back of the wolf and was carried away to the safety of the mountains. The she-wolf raised the boy in a cave, surrounded by rich vegetation in the Altai Mountains, and here the boy grew up into a strong young man. The she-wolf's name was Asena. Now, this is the part of the story that gets weird as the young man impregnated the she-wolf who gave birth to ten wolf boys. And these wolf boys each took a wife and gave birth to their own children. The leaders of the Asena clan claimed their lineage from the wolves. This myth has familiar tones to the mythology of Rome with Romulus and Remus, as well as certain Native American tribes who claimed their ancestry from wolves. This is the mythical birth of the Ashina tribe. The Ashina warriors grew up strong and determined to get revenge for their father by destroying their enemies. But they were still stuck in the steep Altai Mountains. One of the sons was taught the art of blacksmithing and forged a great hammer. Once this hammer was finished, they used it to smash down the rocks that kept the men trapped within the mountain oasis and unleashed the Ashina men on the world beyond the mountains. This legend is the birth of the Turkic peoples. And from these mountains came the warriors, armed with metal weapons, riding horses, and thirsty for blood, the blood of their enemies. Now, was this all made up from nothing? A simple fabrication to give a new tribe an origin story to tell the children around the fire? Not exactly. There are Chinese writings that back up a certain part of this legend. Not the wolf part, that is obvious, but the origin of the Turks rose from the remains of the Huns, who were wiped out by the Chinese. The Huns are said to have worshipped the blue sky god Tengri, and so did the Turks. Does that mean the Turks and the Huns shared common ancestors? It's very possible. The Turks lived in yurts, tents that could be disassembled
0: and reassembled, to move north and south with the seasons, taking their livestock with them to greener pastures in the winter, and back up north in the summer to escape the heat. They hunted, raised animals, and even grew crops, and also traded with civilizations along the Silk Road. At this time, when the Ashina made their way into written history, the steppelands were dominated by the Rurin Cognate it seemed as though the Ashina were about to be assimilated into the new Kaganate as a vassal tribe. The elder of the Ashina submitted to the Rurin overlords and served as blacksmiths of the new Kagan. In one article, it is said that the Ashina were slaves of the Rurin, and in another, it says that they were an equal partner. Either way, the son of the Ashina tribal leader was unhappy with his people's place in the new Kaganate. The young man's name was Boomin. In the year 545, Boomin took over the Ashina tribe and became their leader. It was already common knowledge among the tribes of the Kaganate that the Ashina were skilled blacksmiths who could forge their own weapons. Defying the will of the ruined Kaganate, young Boomin led his own private raid into northern China, where he came upon two warring families the Chinese Wei, and the Chinese Qi. The leader of the Wei dynasty and the young Bumin found they had common ambitions, so an alliance was forged between the two. They proposed a trade alliance between the two powers in defiance of the Rurin khaganate As this all happened under the nose of the Rurin Kagan, a rebellion broke out on the western frontiers of the khaganate This was Bumin's chance to prove himself. He raced across the steppe land with his warriors, put down the rebellion of Turks in the west, and brought them all to heel. After slaughtering those who resisted, he got the remaining Turks to follow him directly. Buman had used the rebellion of Turks as an opportunity to grow his own personal followers. He now had the momentum of victory, plus tens of thousands of steppe warriors at his command. Booman then rode into the Kagan and asked for the Coggan's daughter's hand in marriage to reward him for putting down the rebellion. So what do you think the Kagan said to this young man after such a bold request? He said, How dare you speak such words to me? You are my blacksmith and my slave. This was an insult that Booman never forgot and never forgave. He left the camp humiliated. He was lucky he wasn't killed right there. Maybe Bumin had to bite his tongue and leave in shame while the Rurin nobles laughed at him. Either way, this left Bumin with no other choice. He had an army, and he had influence over the Turks, but he was tiny compared to the Rurin Kagan. So Bumin rode south with his men and re-entered China, to seek out the Wei dynasty he had established trade relations with earlier. There he sought a marriage alliance with the Wei dynasty. The request was granted, and the emperor's daughter was sent north to the camp where she met her husband, Bumin. With a royal wife and an army of Turkic warriors, he started a full-scale rebellion against the Rurankagan. In 542 CE, Boomin's men met the Rurin army in a pitched battle in the plains of Mongolia. The two forces charged at each other in the open plains, and Boomin's men swept right through the Rurin horse riders, slaughtering every single one of them. The defeat was so great for the Rurin Khaganate that the Kagan himself committed suicide after the battle. The family members of the Kagan fled the steppeland and sought refuge in China, in the kingdom of the Qi, or Qi, the rivals to the Wei dynasty in western China that Bumin had married into only a few years earlier. The position of Khagan was now vacant, and Bumin gladly stepped into the position and founded his own Khaganate, the first Turkic Khaganate or the first empire of the turks the ashina rulers called themselves turok or turk not all the tribes of the steppe were ashina but many were already turk they shared a common language a common culture and a common religion and so they all took the name turk in solidarity with the great gok empire
1: Bumin was now on top of the world, but the struggle was not over. There were still Turkic tribes out there that were not part of the cognate, and many other tribes that needed to be brought under the fold by blood and iron. Bumin set out with his brother Istemi to extend the power of the Turkic Empire. Now where do you think their first target was? Maybe it was the straggling Turkic tribes of Central Asia. Or perhaps the Turkic tribes of Siberia? Nope, it was a target much further east, in the land we today call Korea. But why Korea? This aspect alone tells us that Booman had a wide understanding of the politics of his neighbors. He knew all about the great Chinese kingdoms to the south, one with which he had chosen relations with but they were well defended and strong. But the Korean Peninsula was fractured and independent, and that caught Bumin's attention. It was a target that was internally struggling and cut off from allies, and therefore made a great target for his early expansion. And so Bumin gathered the thousands upon thousands of horse riders and marched them east. The kingdom that ruled over northern Korea at the time wasn't as isolated as they are now, in fact, their power extended into what we would call today northern China, or Manchuria, and even as far north as parts of Mongolia. These rulers over northern Korea and Manchuria were known as a Guguryo. The Turks raided Gugurio and laid waste to several small settlements, but they were stopped at their first major city. This is where the king of Goguryeo rallied an army of 10,000 riders to meet the Turks and fight them out of their land, forcing the Turks back to the Eurasian steppe. His first attempt at conquest failed, but Bumin was determined not to give up. The Turks stayed on one side of the river and the Goguryeo remained on the other side of the river, and at this point, the river became known as the eastern border of the Turk Empire. The word "Gok" meant blue or Blue Sky, and directly referred to the Blue Sky of Tengri. This was a Tengri Empire. The hierarchy of the Gokturk Cagnate had Bumin at the top, with the Ashina nobles as princes over their own domain. But Bumin was also wise enough not to interfere with the nobles of other tribal leaders who were assimilated to the great Cognate. These other lords became known as Begs, or Bey. They had a form of autonomy over their own tribes, and could lead their own tribes into battle. But they were all subservient to the great Bumin Khagan To stand against the Khagan was to stand against Tengri himself. In 552, Bumin's health quickly faded, and he soon later died. His empire was bigger than any other steppe empire that had come before it, and he did something most unusual on his death. He broke the empire up into two halves, leaving a Khagan in charge of the east and another Khagan in charge of the west. It was a dual kingship. Not unlike the eastern and western Roman empires that came a hundred years before. But at this point, the empire was still a single entity. Buman's son became the kagan of the Gokturk tribal land and supreme ruler, while Buman's brother Istemi controlled the newly conquered land's To the west. Dum-dum-dum. To the west. Mm -hmm. So you know what he's going to be doing? I think he's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Until they implode.
0: In the east, the Qi dynasty of China, or Qi dynasty, had a 400-kilometer border with the Gok Turk Empire. To their west... The Wei dynasty was on friendly terms with the Gokturk cognate, And in the far east, the Koreans had just made a border agreement with the Turks. It was obvious to the Qi dynasty, the Gokturks were going to invade. And so they built a 1600 kilometer wall to protect them from a Gokturk invasion. This wall is not to be confused with the Great Wall of China, although it is pretty much the same thing. This wall, according to Wikipedia, is called the Northern Qi Great Wall. On the northern side of this wall was a thin stretch of land still occupied by the surviving noble families of the Rurin dynasty. The Qi saw them as allies and knew they were now trapped on the other side of the wall so they moved them to the south to settle them along the Wei Dynasty and the Qi Dynasty. Unfortunately for those Rurin refugees who settled in the west, in the Wei Dynasty, they were immediately apprehended and offered back to the Gok Turks as tribute, as the Wei Dynasty was on friendly terms with them. The northern Qi Dynasty felt like their hand was forced They needed to fight back against the Gokturk Empire. They rallied the surviving Rurin clans and sent them north of the Wall to fight the Gokturks in open battle. It would have been nice if they sent all of their own men to back them up, but they didn't. And the Rurins were massacred by the Gokturks and came fleeing back to the Northern Qi Dynasty. When this first attempt failed, the emperor of the Qi dynasty organized a second assault on the stepland. But this time the ruins felt like they were being used. Instead of marching their men north to fight the great Gokturk armies, they turned around and marched their massive army against the northern Qi dynasty. It is said that the ruins attacked the Chinese with 50,000 soldiers. But it is unclear if this is 50,000 people or 50,000 men because the same source claims that it was a massive defeat and more than 30,000 men, women, and children were captured and sold into slavery. To us, it sounds like the entire Rurin clan attacked the northern Qi dynasty out of desperation. They were between a rock and a hard place. And this sounds very similar to the treatment the Goss were getting from the Romans on the western side of Eurasia. The Eastern Gok Turks had established their borders against the northern Chinese states, and the Rouran dynasty, which had ruled over the Turks for generations, was now crushed. So after this whole episode, I just got a quick question. Um, Does the description of the northern Chinese kingdoms make sense, or is it kind of hard to picture?
1: Well, um, we talked about Korea being bigger, actually being most of Manchuria, so I guess on the, looking at the map of China, the north right corner is smaller because of uh, Korea, and then the key dynasty was on the, eastern part of the northern china and the way on the western part of northern china well, that's how i pictured the only thing different to me in size probably is just Manchuria, part of korea
0: well that's it for today join us next time on the history of modern greece stay safe and stay awesome